فيك تخسر شيء وانا مليت من عشرة نفسي Hi, I'm Lina Sergiatar and welcome to Belongings, a podcast where we talk about home and have conversations about the places that create, shape, and sometimes break us. Before we start, I'd like to share Wendy's bio, which is so impressive. Dr. Wendy Perlman is an award-winning researcher, writer, and crown professor of Middle East studies at Northwestern University. She has studied or conducted research in Spain, Germany, Morocco, Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, Israel, and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Wendy is the author of four best-selling books, Occupied Voices, Stories of Everyday Life from the Second Intifada was a Boston Globe and Washington Post bestseller. The second, Violence, Nonviolence in the Palestinian National Movement was named one of Foreign Policy's best books on the Middle East in 2011. Wendy's third book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, a fantastic book, Voices from Syria, is based on interviews that she has conducted from 2012 to the present with more than 400 displaced Syrians in Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon, the United Arab Emirates, Denmark, Sweden, Germany, and the United States. The book is a collection of first-hand testimonials that chronicles the Syrian rebellion, war, and refugee crisis exclusively through the stories and reflections of people who have lived it. Her long-form narrative essays, Love in the Syrian Revolution and Fathers of Revolution, tell the stories of some of the extraordinary people whose stories she has collected. Wendy's current book project returns to interviews with displaced Syrians focusing on the meaning of home, exile, belonging, and identity in a context of protracted war and indefinite displacement. Welcome, Wendy. So let's go into our conversation. So mm-hmm. tell me about your map of home. Okay. So it's not really a map as much as a picture. And it's not really a picture of home as much as it is as sort of an aspirational picture of home. So the context of, of that is my partner, Peter, and I, after a year of searching to buy a new house as of last week, under contract to buy an apartment together. So we did this interview two weeks ago. I would have drawn my own apartment where I've been living in Chicago for eight years, which I think of as home. But we're now in the process of transitioning from that home to another home. So what I've drawn is kind of a mixture of the fantasy home that might be after several months if the contract actually goes through and we actually buy it and, and move in. And the mixture of the guys, guess the kinds of things I've been thinking about as we've been searching to buy a home, like what is sort of the ideal that I've been hope to have in a new home. So it's not what I've drawn or what's come to me as not my childhood home because I had several, but this hope of a new home. So there are just various elements in the picture then. The first thing that I drew is a window with a tree outside the window because I have this kind of fantasy of being able to look out the window and see leaves. So we're an apartment on the top floor and I kind of want to look out and feel like I'm in a, a tree house. So that 
for whatever reason, being sort of surrounded by trees and leaves is extremely comforting and calming and something I find joyful. Very sadly, I also put my desk and my computer because home is where you sit and write. That's kind of, I guess, my calling. So I have my own standing desk with a computer and a very large mug of tea because I drink tea out of these things that look like soup bowls. I put Peter and me here together. I put my sports equipment because for me, you know, home is where I can do my weightlifting classes. So it's not home if I don't have that part of my life. Various plants, which are also a bit aspirational because I hope to develop a more green thumb in this new home. I have a sort of platform here with a lot of sculpture from my grandmother. My grandmother was a ceramicist and a sculptor. So it's not home if I don't have it covered with my grandmother's art all over the place. And I have a hammock that Peter and I bought several years ago, but haven't had a chance or place to put the hammock up. So hopefully home will be this new hammock. And in the background, I have sort of trees for a tree lines street. And back there, this thing that looks like a cloud is actually Lake Michigan, because if you are live in Chicago, you orient yourself where the lake is and that, that puts Chicago stamp. So it's not a floor plan, not a real map, but a kind of collection of elements that either I associate with home or I hope to be associated with whatever new home we develop in the upcoming months and years. Well, congratulations on your new <laughs> Thanks. home. And I, I really love the idea of aspirational home. Yeah. I think that's something that's so relevant to what we are talking about and the hope of home. That's yes. really, really beautiful. I wanted to ask you about, can you tell us a little bit about your background and where did you grow up and what is home to you, like in terms of your childhood home? So I was born in Oak Park, a due west suburb of Chicago. My parents met in Chicago. My dad was a lifelong Chicagoan. So I was born in Oak Park and lived there until I was 10. And then my family moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, where my dad was kind of hopping from one job to another and and hopped to, to Lincoln, Nebraska. So I was there from age 10 to 18. Not long after we got to Nebraska, he actually began another job in Kansas. So my family kind of let me finish high school in Nebraska. But then as soon as I graduated high school and then went away to college in the proud state of Rhode Island, where I know that you have, have roots as well, my family moved to Kansas. At that point, my, my mom and my little brother, my older sister had already moved away as well. So when people ask me where I'm from, I typically say Nebraska, because that's where I spent the kind of formative years of 10 to 18. But the truth is I lived there for eight years and returned to Nebraska maybe only once or twice in the past 30 years because we didn't have any family roots there. We moved there for my dad's work and then my dad moved on to another work and we no longer had any family roots there. And then I went to college and I went to graduate school and I spent lots of years in the Middle East. And then I came back to the Chicago area only 14 years ago by pure chance because I got a job here. When you look for a job as a professor, you apply to every single job that's offered and roll the dice and hope you get some job and go wherever you're hired. So it was pure chance that I wound back in Chicago, but it's a place where I do have family and where I do have family roots. So it's a place where I've made sort of an adult home. But because as a child, I was in one place and then another place, and they were both places that after I moved away, I, I didn't go back to. So even after I moved away to college, when I would go back to visit my parents, they were in Kansas, a place where I had never lived. It was just where I visited my family for many years. I don't have a strong sense of a hometown that I associate with childhood memories and memories that accumulated and accumulated and memories that renewed 
by going back and going back and going back and by sustaining those relationships. So my own historical sense of home is, is I think, a bit more fragmented than a lot of people who very quickly and very easily identify with a single place as where they grew up. And maybe that's why I'm more aspirationally looking at going forward and what in in adulthood can I compensate for to feel rooted in things I will continue to build as an adult more than things I associate with family or my own past. So in that sense, what does belonging mean to you? So this is a terrific question because like you, I think, think a lot, lot, lot about this term. And I've read a lot of academic research and theory about belonging. And as you said in your opening remarks, I'm now engaged in writing a book of Syrian stories about belonging. And I've written some academic articles. So it's hard for me to differentiate my own personal sense as Wendy and now all this academic sort of blah, blah, blah that I have in my head from what I've read. But and also from what I've heard from other people, because I like you, Lena, now spend a lot of my time asking people this exact question more than I really answer it for myself. But I think given all that I've thought about belonging, really mostly talking to other people about it, is that the crux of belonging is something about really, really feeling like yourself, that you don't have to put on appearances, that you don't have to act like someone different than you are, that you are, are truly yourself and you are also truly and genuinely accepted by others for who you are. And there's some combination of this internally feeling at ease, feeling real comfort, feeling at home, for lack of a better word, and being accepted as such. So there's something, a feeling that's internal to yourself and a kind of social dynamic that comes from others. And that's the magic that they would when they come together, almost this chemistry coming together, belonging is the result. I love that definition, <laughs> that internal and external coming together to make that is really incredible. I mean, I, I would expect that coming from when we're <laughs> no. like talking about belonging after, you know, this is your specialty. So this is so yeah. great that we have you today. I want to go back to how we met I mean, I can't remember if it's a specific moment, but how I recall it is that we met through your article, Love in the Syrian Revolution. I might have known you before you know, from your work, but I remember that article for us was us meaning uh, my friends and I who were all in on the Syrian Revolution and a lot of activist groups and people on Twitter. And this article comes along and it's a long article. It's yeah. a long piece essay and we read it and we're thinking, I remember my reaction, how we shared it. And we were thinking somebody finally wrote a Syrian story, you know, an authentic Syrian story. It had all of the despair. It had all of the hope, the beauty. It was real. It was true. And it wasn't this thing that was projected of like, look at what's happening in Syria or, you know, just it wasn't an outsider view. It was an insider view. And it was so beautiful. And that truth coming out was very important to us when we read it. And I remember then we connected probably on Twitter after that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I get goosebumps, Lena. Thank you. That's, um, <laughs> maybe this is belonging because I'm feeling here so seen and so validated. And this is exactly what I set out to do. And it means the world to me that you thought that I was able to do it. I mean, you did it and we will link to uh, this story, this article, the essay in the notes. I found out later that when you were having these conversations with these Syrian refugees in Jordan, Raida and Hamza and their family, mm -hmm. 
this was part of the larger project, which would become We Crossed the Bridge and It Trembled at the time. We didn't know that you were collecting these oral histories. That's mm -hmm. also a part of your work from before, working in Palestine and with Palestinian people about their oral histories and their stories. So I know this is something that is deep-rooted in your research and in your work. So when you came to this story, how did you come to this idea of doing oral history to capture people's stories? And how did you start doing your research for We Crossed the Bridge and It Trembled? So as you mentioned, that my first book that I started before I began doing a PhD in political science was a book of interviews with Palestinians. And I had lived in the West Bank from January to June to 2000. And then when the second Intifada began, I was away and watching, trying to follow the news as much as I could about them really horrifically violent set of incidents and was trying from afar to understand what it felt like, what it was like to experience um, the sounds, the smells, the feelings, the emotions of, of this for Palestinians. And, and I felt like what I was reading in the news or following wasn't giving me that lived sense. And the first chance I had, I went back to the West Bank and Gaza Strip and tried to interview people, very open-ended interviews of them just describing what this time had been like for them. And that sort of inspired me with the power of open-ended storytelling, that if you're able, lucky enough to get in a, in a situation where you can earn a bit of trust and put down a tape recorder and ask someone, tell me about your life, tell me about what these events have been like for you, to put down a tape recorder and ask someone, who are you? Tell me about yourself. What you can learn is absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, I'm a political scientist by training, so I'm really interested in politics. I'm interested in conflict. I'm interested in struggles over power. I'm interested in resources, in the stuff of politics, but I'm really interested in how people live politics, both how politics affects people's lives, sometimes in horrible ways, creating enormous suffering or in creating enormous opportunity and security. So both how politics affects people and how people affect politics, especially when they confront situations that are unjust or are oppressive and what space there is for them to come together and try to change things. So the first book of interviews I did with Palestinians was trying to capture Palestinian stories about exactly that, ordinary people talking about what politics was like for them through their own stories about just talking about them, themselves as people. So when the Arab uprisings began in 2011 and I started following events in Syria, I was drawn back to that approach. The interviews I had done with Palestinians were in the year 2000, so this was over a decade later. I began the project in Syria with a more academic question in mind. I wanted to do an academic research project on explaining the puzzle of participation in high-risk dissent, which was a very fancy way of saying, why and how did people go out to protest? So I began my first set of interviews with Syrians in 2012. As, as I was too afraid to go inside Syria and try to have those conversations, I began interviewing Syrians who left the country as refugees. I started out in Jordan, basically talked to anyone and everyone I could. The way I translated this fancy question of participation in high-risk dissent was translated in the words that were so widespread at the time, which was, how did you break the barrier of fear? Or how did the barrier of fear break for you? But it was really a way of collecting stories about the revolution as people had lived it at that point. That's how I began. And then I discovered as I went along that really almost the most effective question was simply to ask someone tell me about yourself. And so I began in 2012. I returned to, to Jordan and in Turkey in 2013. 
2015, and then I went on to Lebanon, then I went on to Europe. And basically, it's been 10 years now that I've been interviewing really any Syrian person who will sit down with me now, sometimes virtually and remotely and sometimes in person and and tell me their story. So the first several years, a lot of those stories were really focused on the revolution itself of chronicling what happened and how it happened and what it was like for people to live those events. In 2017, a collection of those stories was published as the book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. And I have continued to do it ever since now with uh, this new book focused on precisely this question of home and belonging. I think I I remember you telling us about that. You asked everybody about how did you break the barrier of fear when you spoke about this book. And that was one of the revolution's phrases, that would be repeated a lot. And I can understand how that was probably universal at the beginning, but then with time, that might not have been the most universal question to ask everybody. I mean, every person has a story, but specifically in the context of Syria and the events of the last 10 years, each person will come at the same really tragedy in a very different way. Yeah, absolutely. It was an incredible springboard question to ask people in summer 2012. It was still live and raw. And I found again and again, people who had participated in demonstrations were still very excited to talk about what for many described as the most beautiful moment of their life and how they broke through the barrier of fear. But already by one year after, it was no longer the appropriate question to ask. Even now when I do interviews, questions or people's stories about their first demonstrations and participating and breaking through fear often come up and they're they're beautiful when these stories come up. But I discovered it was better to lead with something much more open, to allow people to go in whatever direction they want, that if they want to go to that moment, I'll follow them there. If they want to talk about loss and tragedy and in darker and more terrible things they can. If they want to talk about the present and not go look to the past at all, that's also an option. So open-ended interviewing, I just love it as a way of, of understanding someone in a way that it gives that person the, the space to direct the conversation, to avoid things they don't want to talk about to delve into things they want to talk about. And whatever somebody says, it's going to be absolutely fascinating for me. And also give me material of some sort that then I can use in my own writing to try to share with others to increase some sort of awareness or understanding of the Syrian experience. Absolutely. And it's such a great way of storytelling. I mean, I want to tell all of our listeners to really, you must read this book. I lot many Syrians I know say that this is the most important book on Syria because they feel seen, I like we feel seen, because the extraordinary part of this book, in my opinion, is how you stitched all of the stories together and you took yourself out of it. I mean, your voice is not present in the book except at the beginning in the introduction. And then you let these interviews, the voices of Syrians shine completely. But you've also done this magical piece of putting all of them together to tell the full story. So each individual voice told a collective story. I think that the way that you constructed the book, really, you know, at Karam, we talk so much about uplifting dignity 
and really making dignity shine through because it's one of the things that I think in the portrayal of refugees gets thrown away right at the beginning by others. And this book does really the opposite. So we love this book as Syrians. And I wanted to ask you about how did you make these kinds of choices as you decided to put the book together? You interviewed over 400 refugees. I know you had thousands probably of hours of recordings. How do you sit as a writer to construct this project? Thank you so much. I mean, these words mean the world to me, Lena. I mean, for you, not only as a, you know, and as an activist and institution builder, but also you're a darn good writer. <laughs> so people don't know Lena as a writer. Man, this woman has a way with words. So I know that we can sort of nerd out and talking about the craft of, of writing and the vision of how you sequence a piece and where you begin and where you end and where you take a reader all along the way to make it effective. So there was a lot of trial and error. And I can say that my first drafts of this book did not have this format at all. It had me in it much more prominently as a kind of omniscient narrator who guided the reader from one person and one scene to another and sort of had these big block quotes from my interviews. And that first draft was terrible. It was just terrible. But there's a back and forth between my voice and the voices of my interviewees. And slowly it clicked through the input of, of a fantastic editor and critical reader who said, the best thing here are the interviewees themselves, are their voices. And that's when it was almost this euphoria moment for me. A light bulb went off and I said, I don't need to, to be there. These voices not only have the emotion and the lived experience, but they also have analysis. They don't need me as an analyst to interpret the events, to analyze and make sense of the events. The interviews I collected had it all. They had feeling and passion. They also had a political analysis. They had historical context. They connected the dots. So my role became kind of a, like a curator. I had these beautiful paintings and my job was to put them on the wall in the right sequence that could walk a reader through the story by going from one voice to another. So once I understood that that was 100% the way to go. Then there were lots of, of choices about which voice to put where, about how to trim the passages. Because you're right, they usually audio record the interview, transcribe the full interview, so word for word, what happened in that conversation. That interview could be 20,000 words, like 40 or 50 pages. And in, in the end, I might have put two sentences in, wow. or one paragraph. And there was a bit of, you know, rearranging to get something from the beginning of the interview and the end of the interview and push them together. So how to shorten, because literally the length of the book could be the length of three interviews. And instead there are over 80 people speaking. So there was a, a lot of trial and error, a lot of experimentation, a lot of trimming and then rearranging and then putting back and then cutting and then putting back until you felt like it all kind of felt fell into place. And there's not, of course, one best way of doing it, yeah. but this is the way that that felt like there was some sort of coherence in going from story to story without me needing to be the glue in between telling the reader and now we're going to hear another voice that talks about this. Yeah. The voices could do them themselves. So the book I'm writing now is the same format and it's trickier, but it's a format that I've really come to love. And I love the creative process of putting it together because it is storytelling. It's not fiction and that I'm not inventing the characters. I have what happened to real people in their real words telling what happened to them. But my job is to honor it and showcase it in the best possible way by assembling it in a way that will engage a reader. 
it's really true art. And we mm-hmm. want to get to your new project. But before we leave, we crossed the bridge and it trembled. I wanted to first ask you, are you still in touch with Raida and Hamza? Yes. So can I am. you tell us anything about what happened to them? Yeah, well, I, I might have to ask their permission to tell more, but I will tell what the highlight of the Gheda and, and Hamza union is an absolutely beautiful, dynamic, totally brilliant little boy who was the, the son of Gheda and Hamza, who is thriving and doing well. And when I saw him last in Turkey, um, spoke totally fluent English that he's learned from YouTube. And um, (laughs) it's just a a terrific, terrific kid. So the whole family is doing well. But if you recall from that story, she was pregnant at the time and their son is thriving. That's really lovely. (laughs) Do you keep in touch with a lot of people that you interviewed for this book? Does that transfer into the second book? What did people think, the people that you interviewed when they read your book, what did they think about it? Yes, I keep in touch as much as I can, you know, and social media is very helpful for this, of course, or so I guess Facebook, especially. I wish I did more, you know, it can be a full-time job and people move on and you try to, and you're, I always feel quite guilty. I'm never in touch as much as I should. And I, you know, drop out of touch and get back in touch and people have been, are like, where have you been? And, you know, it's, it's, I it's, think it's totally it's, understandable, especially <laughs> the last two and a half years. That's totally understandable. Yeah, you do definitely, you definitely try your best, but you know, I can say to anyone listening, if you haven't heard from me, I deeply apologize. And you are deep, deep in my heart and my mind. And, and if I don't write as much as I should, you're still a part of my, my life and my soul. And for the most part, anybody who's I've been able to share the book with, who's read their passages, has been really pleased. And before the book was published, I got in touch with everybody I could, who I was still in, in touch with. I mean, there are some people I met in a very fleeting way in a room with 30 people, and I never even got their full names. And then there were people I sat down with for several hours, and, and we exchanged information and have been in touch ever since. So anyone I was still in touch with, When I had a final draft of the book, I got back to them and was able to show them, you know, this is the final passage from your interview that I want to use. Are you comfortable with that? Do I have your permission? And at that point asked, would you like to have your real name used or would you like to have a pseudonym used? So that was very important to me. And the most wonderful things I heard when people said things like, someone said to me, I hear my spirit coming through in this passage. And when I work with the text. And when I have translators who I, I hire to do translation from Arabic to English of Arabic interviews or or others who have transcribed the English interviews, I always say, you know, transcribing and translating is also an art. And the mission is not only to accurately capture what someone says, all their words, but to try to capture something of the personality that comes through with it too, to capture who someone is in addition to accurately getting what they say. So uh, that's kind of my responsibility and that's kind of my goal. And yeah, it's been delightful when, when people feel at the very least feel like I got them right. Some people have said, well, I think you did a bit of editing and this sounds more coherent and clearer than I probably spoke to you. But that's also a trick of this kind of work is that oral communication is different than writing. How people speak is different than how they write. I mean, here I've been talking to you for a half an hour. Did I ever use punctuation? Did any sentence end? You know, you start a sentence, you go to another sentence. There's a nice rambling, beautiful flow of casual conversation. So to translate not only from Arabic to English, but from spoken words, 
something that can function on the page as a written word also takes some finessing and you want to balance being authentic and true to what was spoken, but there's a bit of tweaking that has to happen in order for it to work as a text. So it can be a bit tricky and it is a huge sigh of relief when someone then reads on the page, yeah, this is me. This is what I told you. Well, hearing my spirit come through, that's a really big compliment. And tell me about it. I'm still like, really, it's hard for me to toggle between writing and the audio piece because that's also in writing, you can make everything be solid and perfect. Absolutely. In writing, you can rewrite the same sentence for four days. You know, when you do it on a podcast, you speak those words into the atmosphere and they're gone. So true. (laughs) Well, I want to give everybody a taste of your writing, which is so great. And one of the things I really love about the book is that the length of the stories or the pieces, sometimes they can vary from a few pages to, you know, half a page. So we chose a couple and I'd love if you could read them and then people can actually have that piece, like hearing the spirits come through. Thank you. So I'm following your lead, Lena, and you wanted me to be from Bushra. So this is a mother and this is someone I interviewed in Lebanon. And she said, today, kids don't think about going to school in order to be able to get a job someday. It's the opposite. They think about getting a job in the hope they will be able to go to school someday. Kids' biggest dream is that they find some sort of work or they dream about living in a real house. Sometimes I go to a women's center. One day I took my young daughter with me. She was so excited. After living in a tent, she was amazed by the real walls and real floors. She said, take a photo of me next to the wall. So there's a lot there in thinking about home and what home is, especially from an architect's point of view. <laughs> and the next uh, passage that being suggested that I read is from Abdelaziz, a teacher. This is an interview I did in the Zafari refugee camp in Jordan. And he said, for Jordan, Zathari is a dead area. They found a place in the desert where not even a tree or an animal can live. And they put the Syrian people there. The other day we saw a butterfly in the camp. Everyone got so excited. We were all shouting at each other to come and look at it. It must have really lost its way if it wound up here. So powerful and moving and speaks to so many people's experiences. Let's move on to this new project about home and belonging. I am very excited to hear about it. And you shared a little bit about the breakdown of how the book is constructed and that it's similar to We Crossed the Bridge and It Trembled. And so can you talk about this idea of now we're over 11 years in to the war and the revolution and the displacement that happened in waves and people have moved on, whether, you know, for good or or for worse, they have moved on in life. So what was that like? How did you decide what to focus on and talk about this idea from, you know, I'm calling it the stages from displacement to belonging. And I know that it's very different for each person. Tell us about this project. So one is I, I never set out trying, thinking about to write a book about home or belonging. After We Crossed a Bridge came out in 2017, and I just kept doing these interviews with Syrians because I didn't know what else to do with myself. I just kept doing it. You know, year after year, would just sit down with anybody, and I just always say I have two questions. One is, do I have permission to record? And two is, tell me about yourself. And literally, that was it. Tell me about yourself. And I would just record wherever people went. And 
for a few years, I wasn't quite sure what I would do with this. I just felt this compulsion to continue to document, to continue to record these stories, that they were remarkable people talking about remarkable things. And I was lucky enough to have the time and the resources to just try to get them down on paper. And then slowly, I saw different themes coming through the stories, which were different than the interviews I had done at the beginning of the revolution. And I wasn't quite sure what to call these themes that were coming through. They were stories and reflections and people making sense of things related to identity, to exile, and to belonging. And people would use the word belonging. And slowly I came to the word home as also a way of sort of tying up the different threads of what people were saying. But really, it's, it seemed like people were just trying to make sense of everything that they had lived through. So the first book tries to really just document what happened through people's stories. What was the background? How did protests begin? How did they escalate? How did they militarize? What was the regime's response? How did this become a war? It just tries to get the history down as people lived it. And in this sort of later stage, I think people themselves are, are asking, what did we just live through? And who am I after having lived through all of that? And who are we? And after so much suffering, what gives life meaning? And after so much struggle also and achievement, what have I discovered about what makes life meaningful? So there's stories and reflections really about making meaning after events that are both incredibly heroic and inspiring, and also, you know, a tragedy and an injustice that defies words. And how do those who've survived, who made these events and were transformed by these events, make sense of it all? So belonging in home isn't the only label to put on that. But I found that people thinking about home and belonging in terms of who they are, where they feel grounded in the world, what gives them a sense of security, a sense of comfort, a sense of love, a sense of purpose, how they find that in radically new places where they've found themselves now living for whatever strange events of chance and fate, that home was a way of tying together these threads of making sense of it all. So it, the book has shifted from an effort to chronicle to what happened, sort of interpret it, or capture how people themselves are interpreting it as they look back and as they look forward. How many people have you interviewed so far for this book? Since 2012 into the present, it's been maybe 515 or so people. At this point in the book are all new voices. So they're none of the, the voices from the first book, just to introduce readers to a new sort of array of, of speakers and not to go back to these other folks again and force them to tell me their life story a, a second time. So it's all new voices. And in comparison to the last book, the stories are longer. So as you said before, that in We Crossed a Bridge, sometimes there was a passage of two sentences, sometimes a paragraph, and sometimes two paragraphs. And I felt like that reflected the fast pace of the events. There was a fast pace, an incredibly fast pace, an overwhelmingly fast pace to the uprising. So many things were happening so quickly. And there's a fast pace of lots of people speaking in a quick way to capture some of that speed. And now from my observations, you know, as an outside outsider trying to understand the Syrian experience, it's a much slower phase. There isn't a need to, to chronicle so much what happened today, yesterday, fast, fast, fast. There's a time for more introspection, uh, slower storytelling, really deep thinking and looking at one's life. 
So at this point, there probably will be fewer people speaking and much longer stories that allow a reader to get to know people in a bit more depth. In the last book, the main character of the book was the revolution. It was a collective story to tell that thing story. And now it's looking back and saying, okay, who are these people as people? Let's get to know their experiences a, a bit more. So I'm not sure how many speakers are in the book right now, but there'll be fewer. And one other thing that's a bit interesting is, you know, starting in 2020, like many people, I discovered Zoom and remote interviewing and started doing interviews remotely, which allowed me to do interviews with people in places that I had not traveled to and probably would not travel to. So the book tries to be this upcoming book, a little bit more global in scope of sort of the new Syrian diasporic experience. So there are some voices from Japan, from Australia, from Brazil, from Sudan. So it gets a little bit outside the box of, of also hearing people who wound up in, in different places. That's just incredible. I was going to ask you about how the virtual interviews would change the way that you have the storytelling, because also there's just something very different, especially in your context of doing these kinds of story collections that is so much built on trust. Mm -hmm. And for somebody to tell you their story, you have to really spend time with them. So did you find it hard to get to that level when it was on Zoom and virtual with somebody you've never met before in person? Much less than I expected. So I absolutely, I never occurred to me to do an interview that was not face to face before 2020. I think no way. There's no way that could work. But I think for a couple of reasons that it, it worked. And that could be one, because so many of us have become so used to speaking remotely, whether you're speaking to family on WhatsApp or whether you are living on Zoom for school or work, that so many people have become so accustomed to it that I felt comfortable with it. And nearly all of my interviewees felt comfortable with it as well. And I think about how I remember doing an interview with a woman in, in Brazil and she was trying to talk about mapping home. She was trying to describe her block and where she lived vis-a-vis -vis where Checkpoint was. And she said to me in the middle of the interview, can you make me co-host so I can use this draw function on Zoom and share my screen and show it to you? And I was like, wow, your Zoom skills are so much better than mine. So the Zoom became quite handy. So people were, I think, one, accustomed to it. And two is that for nearly all of my interviews at this point, I work through sort of networks of trust. So I interview someone or I know someone and I ask that person, can you introduce me to anybody else who might be willing to tell their story? And as I say, I've become kind of a professionally annoying person because I'm always asking anyone and everyone for that favor. Hi, just checking in. Could you introduce me? Could you introduce me? So I'll put that out there right now to all of the listeners of the podcast. If any of you are interested in doing an interview with me or know anybody who is, please shoot me an email. I'd be thrilled. So I basically just ask everyone that, that question. So by the time somebody is sitting down with me, you know, I know somebody in common who reached out to that person, asked that person, hey, there's this American girl. Would you be willing to talk to her? The person thinks about it, says yes. We get into contact. We set up a date. So there's a bit of time to reflect. Do I really want to do this? And also time to say no. Yeah. yeah sorry, bro. I really don't want to do it. And if so, I just never hear from that person. But by the time the person sits down, they thought about it for themselves and decided they want to be there. So whether or not they've met me and trust me personally, they trust in the idea, they trust in the, the scenario, they trust in the context, and they're ready and willing to do it. So in that sense, the trust hasn't been so much of an issue on Zoom. And there are a few things about Zoom I found oddly to be almost 
more helpful for interviews. So one is when you do an interview in real life, it is in real life. If you're doing it in somebody's home, kids come in, the neighbor knocks on the door, all of a sudden it's time for lunch. You know, it's that's also wonderful to be able to see and experience real life, but a real in-depth session of a person reflecting on their own story often gets interrupted by real life that's happening around them. In contrast, when someone makes an appointment and says, okay, I'm going to set this time aside and sit in front of the computer or the phone and dedicate it to this quiet introspection, often someone is in a, at a time and a place that carved out for that. Often it's late at night. So, so often when I, when I ask Syrian folks, you know, you choose any time that works for you and it's sometimes super late at night and then everyone else in the house is asleep and it's quiet and it, it can sometimes be oddly less interrupted and allows a person to go to into a space. I'll just say one other thing about these remote interviews, which is interesting. In the end, a person is actually not even with me in the room. They're in the room just by themselves and a phone and a computer, which also can be helpful in creating a safe space. And I've funny, I've talked to friends who are either in therapy, who are therapists about sort of teletherapy and people, you know, speaking to psychologists and therapists also remotely that it's surprising the drawbacks I was fearful of have turned out not to be so much of an issue. And there have been some benefits. I will just say, one major caveat there is that there are many people that you're not able to reach, that places where electricity either goes off or is incredibly expensive or internet is incredibly expensive. They don't have the infrastructure or folks who have much more constrained incomes in which sitting down for a couple of hours and talking to somebody online is prohibitive or somebody who's in a space where there are 10 other people in that space and they do not have a, a corner that's quiet in a room to themselves Absolutely. to be able to reflect. So there is a, a kind of a class dimension yeah. that I think remote interviews I, that I've done have been, that have been really excellent, have been with people who have financial means and are in countries that allow that to be possible. And for a large majority of refugees, especially in the country still on Syria's borders and those who are in really difficult financial situations, it's difficult to reach. And for those folks, I still need to really try to get face-to-face. So there's a major limit and constraint for those of you who are thinking about doing remote interviews of this sort to be super, super aware of. And you still do your in-person interviews too. I know you travel a lot still around the region and you go to Europe and have these in-person interviews as well. Yeah, I try as much as I, I can. So I spent about three months in Berlin this summer. I just got back about two weeks ago. And I also spent about a couple of weeks in Jordan this summer where I was able to do some. So not not travel as much as I did in my springly youth, but still still try to. I don't know if you have anything you could share with us from the new book or a story. Could you share a story from the new voices? You know, I'm still working on it. And I think, Lena, you're just going to have to invite me back when the new book is published. Okay. When the new book is published, then I will let you read it and you choose your favorite story for us to talk about. But it's a bit still up in the air. Okay. We'll take you up on that. And we'll probably be doing better podcasts by then, <laughs> hopefully. Not at all. When I'll be thrilled. Book? When is the new book coming? Maybe 2023, maybe early 2024. So it's pretty, there's a pretty close to a full draft finished, but then the finessing and the editing comes through. And also once I do have what feels like a close to final draft of people's passages, then I want to do the work of getting back in touch with people to make sure they're comfortable with what is on the page before it gets published. So that will also take a bit of time. It's such a beautiful process. I wanted to share with you a story. 
it came up in my mind a couple of times during the conversation because yeah. I am going to turn now to Kerem House and your experience yes. at Kerem House with our students. And I wanted to share with you a story that happened to me over the summer when I went in June and we opened up Kerem House. We were in Istanbul for the studios in person for the first time since the pandemic. And I think what you were talking about before about the early stages where everything was so fast and there were a lot of events and yeah. now time has slowed and now we're in a different stage of being introspective and looking back. And also the idea that you brought up that was when you have these open-ended interviews and you just let people go. And this is something that we don't interview people at Karam House, but it's very important for us as a process with the students is that religion and politics don't have a space inside the building, but obviously these kinds of topics that are divisive anywhere really come up because this is part of the children's and the students' lives and their displacement. And, you know, people come from all different kinds of views. So this stuff, it's not that we tell them not to talk about these things, but we don't press on people to talk about their journey of displacement or what has happened to them because our space is a space of hope and looking forward and trying to focus on creativity and innovation. And so I was sitting with a group of young teenage boys and they were talking about their work and their projects and their apps that they're building and all these cool things that you always find at Kerem House. And then suddenly one of them was telling me, I'm from Aleppo and he had his phone and he opened up Google Maps because I asked him, where was your home? And he said it was near the Citadel and a neighborhood near the Citadel. And he kept on zooming in and in and in on Google Maps. And he showed me the Citadel, which is exactly how when I did the Mapping Homes project with the kids in the camps in Aksume back in 2013, I used to draw Aleppo and say, you start with the Citadel and that's where you orient yourself where you are in the city. But he came back and was saying the exact sentence to me almost 10 years after. And he showed me exactly where his home was. And I was almost speechless and just watching him. And then what was unbelievable. So I think he is 16 and the group of boys were between 13 to 16. He began saying, this is where we used to go out and protest. This is where my dad would take me out. I remember the protests. And then there was like a little bit of an argument between the boys that I was watching because the one who was 13 was saying, I remember too. And the boy would say, no, you couldn't have remembered. You were three. I was six. And then I'm thinking, these are these kids that we would see the pictures of and that, you know, they would be carrying their children on their shoulders. He told me we used to be wearing a flag around us. We used to have our face painted before the protest day. And I was watching this displaced memory now because they were arguing about what they remembered. And I was watching like, this is the generation that we were seeing these young children's pictures. Now they're grown up. And they're arguing about who remembers the revolution or home or Aleppo better than the others. Wow. Wow. There's so much in that story. I don't even know where to begin and in responding. And then there was one sentence he says at the end that I'll never forget. He wanted me to know. And he looked at me and he said, because I was watching all of this and he looked at me and said, you should know that when we were protesting, it was before my neighborhood was liberated. And that blew me away because he wanted me to know how brave they were. Yeah. This was when it was still extremely dangerous, but we were out there. And wow. he was a child. And he, then he talks to me about his home being bombed. It was bombed while they were while they were in it. You know, having that experience of a building being completely destroyed, like the pictures that we saw so many of them in Aleppo and other places. And it was just, I never thought I would hear these stories from these kids. It's almost... 
it's very naive to think that we create this bubble and a space of shelter and safe. It is a safe space, but it's almost like not that that part of your life can be on, you know, pause when you enter and to see it so alive in them was really moving and really extraordinary. And it is the next phase of how do we talk about the diaspora? How do we talk about how long do people stay refugees? How long do you consider yourself a refugee or displaced person? When do you end up belonging? And when do these kinds of memories become a little bit less traumatic and become part of, you know, the things that we talk about how we grew up. And I think that we're going to begin to see that stage in the next 10 years of this tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting to think about the role that time plays in all of this. I mean, when we met, Lena, I think it must have been probably 2013 or so, we would never have guessed that we would be here now talking about the kinds of things we're talking about with the kinds of frames of of references. You just can't predict. And in another 10 years, who knows both who people will be and what will be the new issues that we can't imagine that will be important to them or the issues that we see now and assume will be important to them. Maybe they will no longer be. Maybe they will be resolved and become non-issues or they will just fade away. It's mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Before we go into the rapid fire questions, I wanted to ask you about your experience at Kedem House and how was that for you and what you learned? And we'd love to have you back, but I want if you could share with the audience your experience. Thanks. And I would love to come back. We have to work on that. Maybe this upcoming summer. So I was in Kedem House uh, in 2018 and I did a workshop on oral history and it was incredible. I mean, it's funny because now I think of Kedem House as especially being, I'm not especially being in the sciences and technology and engineering, but you guys are also, you know, responding to what there's demand for the young people that, that want training and want experiences and these kinds of things. So I was coming with this very humanistic project. You can't use it for business and you can't use it to build anything. It's just storytelling really for the sake of storytelling. So it was fun and exciting. And the students had never heard the word oral history before. Americans have never heard the term oral history before. So I put together, I guess it was maybe four or five days of workshops. That was both a little bit of thinking about what is oral history? Why do we want to record people's stories? Why is it useful? Thinking about why to do it and then and then how to do it. The techniques of how do you ask questions? What are open-ended questions? What are questions that get people talking as opposed to yes or no questions or questions that shut down a conversation rather than opening it? What are techniques of active listening? You know, just little things that most people don't think about. But when you try to do interviews as you're doing now, you think about how to nod and how to listen and how to allow pauses and when to intervene and when not to intervene. So it was a bit of that. And then the students got going. They practiced interviewing each other. And then the big project was for them to go out and interview someone in their lives, a mother, a grandmother, a neighbor, a sibling, the owner of the grocery store down the street to think about doing oral history. So it was really very exciting. It was wonderful for me because students are just so, uh, their energy, their creativity, their enthusiasm. I mean, it just is like, you know, electricity bolt. You just feel like you're putting yourself into an electricity socket and just having bolts of energy from their, their sheer eagerness and enthusiasm and the questions they ask and the perspective they bring. And then I hoped, you know, to sort of plant that seed for them. Not that they were going to be professional oral historians. Maybe they won't do another interview in their life. But if they go out in the world and think about how to ask questions, how to listen and walk away with something of, you know, convinced of the value of trying to document and record 
this history and to ask questions, just surely even to learn what your grandmother's experience was like, how you're where your father went to school, that if you don't ask and don't listen, that these stories are lost and that everyone has a role to play in trying to document them in whatever way documentation means, or at the very least to hear them and retell them so that this continues on as stories have life when they are heard and they are told and they are retold. But it's, it's a magical place. When you walk in the doors, you just feel like there's a different air than there is outside the doors and inside the doors. And it's a, a warm, welcoming space and a space where you feel like history is being made in these young people who are learning new skills and gaining new confidence and envisioning their futures. You know, the whole idea of building 10,000 leaders. It's an incredible honor and privilege to feel like you get a sneak peek. And in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, you know, we'll be able to trace back and say, what role did Karam House in helping play in, in helping to build something really important? And so I feel like you get even the glimpse to be touched by its magic. What we will look back at being as an early stage, I feel very, very lucky to have been there. Inshallah. I Inshallah. You really just really <laughs> outlined our dreams and hopes and goals. And I hope that we'll see more of our young people reach their dreams because that's all of we're we're all about investing yeah. in their lives. And you have to come back and you have to come to <laughs> Istanbul too. There's so many people you can interview there. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll do it. We'll do it. <laughs> and, and you can use this space and bring everybody and have your interview space too. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yes. Let's do it. I'm making it very enticing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll move on to our rapid fire questions. I'm very excited to ask you these. This is what we ask every guest of belongings. Mm -hmm. The first question is complete this sentence. Home is where? Home is where I don't even have to think about it being home. It just is in a way that you take for granted and you don't have to even ask yourself, is it home or is it not? It just is. I love that. If you had to leave your home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be? I would take a piece of my grandmother's sculpture. I think you have to share a picture of something with us later. Maybe we can put it in the podcast. That would be really beautiful. I will. Unfortunately, because we're moving all of my grandmother's sculpture and pottery is in boxes, but I will do, I will, I'll dig some out for you. Yes. Yeah. What's one piece of advice you would give to a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place? I would say, don't worry about trying so hard. Belonging will come on its own. And when it comes, you'll know it. And it will come at the right time. So true. Give us a list of three unexpected places that people must visit in your hometown. Okay, well, I'm going to say the hometown as Chicago then. So three unexpected places. So one is, this is the least unexpected place. If anyone goes to Chicago, they'll say you have to go visit the lake. So that is a very expected place. But the unexpected question is, so where on the lake? Because it's the entire length of Chicago. So I'll give you my favorite place on the, the lakefront, which is where Lawrence Avenue hits the lake. And here I will credit my dear friend, Trudy Langendorf, who fostered my love for that particular spot. And that's where we go walking because you arrive at the parking lot and you don't necessarily see the lake. There's a little bit of a hill. You walk this little hill and when you get there at the top, you see the lake in all of its glory, the beach, the uh, dog park. It's absolutely magnificent. So where Lawrence Avenue hits the lake is the unexpected place, I would say. First of all, 
The second place, I would say Kitchen 17 Restaurant. Again, the most expected thing that somebody would say in Chicago is go and eat Chicago-style deep dish pizza. And Kitchen 17 has vegan Chicago-style deep dish pizza. So so if you want to get vegan pizza, it's absolutely amazing. So go to Kitchen 17. And the third place I would say is the Old Town School of Folk Music, which is this beautiful historic venue, both for concerts and for music lessons. It has this wonderful community feel. And whether you live in Chicago or visiting Chicago, it's a a truly special place. Wonderful recommendations. (laughs) I love the lake too. And we have a really beautiful beach here in Lake Forest, but I need to go to Lawrence and then the lake and see that. We'll meet there and go for a walk together. For sure. (laughs) My next question is what dish tastes like home to you? And here I would say lentil soup. It's not because I grew up necessarily eating lentil soup, but as now a a very long-term vegetarian and vegan, I eat a tremendous amount of lentil soup. There are times where I make lentil soup and I eat it for three meals a day. If you open my freezer, you will see that half of it is stuffed with individual-sized frozen portions of lentil soup. So when I'm traveling or eating out a lot, I feel like, oh, I just need my body is craving lentils to be recentered. And home is where I make those lentils and can always find those lentils. I love that. It's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, lentil soup is really important for Syrians. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And I think if Syrians saw my version of lentil soup, they would be horrified that I can even call that lentil soup. But I assure you, it's made out of lentils and it's soupy. And there's a, nothing I find more warm and satisfying. And if it's my home, there's lentil soup there. I love that. <laughs> So my last question is, what's a book or books that you love and have recommended to your friends the most? So what I've recommended recently, the last book that I read that just felt floored by is Say Nothing. Um, I think it's by Patrick Redden Keefe. I think it's the name of the author. It's a, a nonfiction book about the troubles in Northern Ireland. And it is absolutely striking, beautiful, and a page turner and what from a kind of, again, I got sort of writing craft point of view. It was amazing to me how he was able to create an incredibly vivid story. Some of it, he used some interviews, but a lot is based on existing documentation that he pieced together this archival document and this news story, but it has all of the page turning thrill of a novel, but his historical nonfiction. So from the point of view of writing, it was just extraordinary, but a story that really grabbed me and similar to some of the things that, that you and I both tried to write about Syria. That's a backdrop of violence, of conflict, but brings to life how real people have lived and been transformed by brutal conflict. So it has all the elements of politics and humanness. Say nothing. I, I highly recommend it. We will check it out and we're going to be sharing all this information with our viewers. I want to thank you, Wendy, for spending time with us today. It's been so enlightening. We can't wait for the new book. You have to come back to the podcast. It's always so lovely to speak with you. Thank you so much. Well, I can't wait for Wendy to come back, hopefully next year when her new book is published, so she can talk to us more about her process and all of these amazing stories that she's been collecting from Syrian refugees and their experiences of the war and displacement over the past years. 
Now we welcome Bayan to the conversation. Bayan is a wonderful Syrian teenager in Kerem House, and she talks to us about her projects, her aspirations, the difficulty of her journey from Syria to Turkey, and the different kinds of things that she's loved, from her favorite dishes to her favorite book. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Bayan. My name is Bayan. I am 18 years old from Syria. How long have you been living in Turkey? I have been here for 10 years. What is your first memory of home? My first steps. My first steps as a baby were caught on film, so I remember them from photos. Can you tell us about the map of home that you drew? This was our summer home in the village. There are a lot of details that escaped my memory. But in general, I drew the common room where I used to play with my cousins, the living room, our bedrooms, and the kitchen. How old were you when you left this house? I was in second grade, so seven years old. Tell us about your trip from Syria to Rehanli in Turkey. We first arrived to Antakya and spent about 20 days there. Then we came to Rehanli. What are some of the difficulties you face in your life here in Turkey? The feeling that I am not supposed to be in this place, it's not me, I am somewhere else. I don't feel that I belong here. The language is different and the culture is different no matter how similar it is. The atmosphere is different from what we are used to. School, university, all of these things. What does belonging mean to you? Belonging is the place that makes me comfortable being in it. It's the place where I don't feel I'm in exile. Do you feel this belonging to Syria or somewhere else? Since I left Syria very young, I can't really say that I belong to Syria. What are some of the things that make you or could make you feel that you belong? People getting together with everyone, like during Eid and Ramadan. Tell us about Kerem House. What does this space mean to you? Before coming here, I was a very shy person, but Karam House helped me break that barrier. It gave me confidence. I have been at Karam House for four years now. I met a lot of people and made great friends. Karam helped me reach new highs. Tell us about a special project you worked on at Kerem House. There was a really special workshop called the prosthetics. Our project was to help a little girl with physical therapy. We created a prosthetic for her. I loved this project because I really felt that I was giving back. I remember this studio so well. It was one of the first studios at Karam, and it was a very special project that we still talk about today. What are your goals and dreams for the future? I want to go to university this year, and I want to travel to a place where I can feel comfortable with who I am. I want to study medical engineering. Complete the sentence, home is where? Home is Syria. 
If you had to leave home and take one item for memory, what would it be? My notebook. Why? Because it has everything. Which dish reminds you of home? Red pepper, pastry pies. What advice would you give a refugee who's going through a similar experience as yours? In my opinion, no one will ever be able to find a place like the one they once felt they belonged to. But we can look for similar belongings, like through relationships with other people and communities. There are a few streets here that I love, and when I'm in them, I feel that I belong. Is there a certain book you've read before that you would recommend to our listeners? A Thousand Splendid Sons by Khalid Hussain. The book talks about the Taliban and Afghanistan and the problems and the operation that women face. Bayan, thank you so much for being here with us today. You are one of the 10,000 leaders at Karam House and we are so proud of you. We wish you all the best. Thanks for listening to Belongings. I'm your host, Lina Sergi Attar. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Majzoub and Noor Al-Ghrawi. Episode researched by Ghania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleiman Faour. Music is Inni Mneeh by Mashro' Layla. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Belongings on Instagram at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit karamfoundation.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time.